The classic sports car has returned. Where has the past year gone? Also, there are new Lotus and MG cars on the horizon and the continuation of my journey into sports car ownership, all coming up on this episode of The Classic Sports Car. Welcome to The Classic Sports Car, a tribute to the sporting classics of a bygone era. Welcome to episode seven of The Classic Sports Car. I'm Tom Dunn who for the past 30 plus years have been turning keys, turning wrenches, and turning over rocks, and turning pages to buy, repair, and learn all about classic sports cars. As I mentioned to the open, the classic sports car has returned. It has been over a year now since the last episode of the classic sports car podcast was published. And if you're listening to this in the future, you may not even notice the break. If you have listened to it in the past and are wondering what happened to it, I want to give just a, a brief kind of overview of the cause for kind of the pause in the podcast. And the goal here moving forward is to be much more consistent and much more accurate in the release of podcasts. So the last podcast was uploaded in May of 2020, so a little over a year ago, actually about 14 months ago. And if we remember spring of 2020, that was when the whole COVID craze was just starting to kick in. And at the time, I was teaching full-time at a university down in the San Diego area. Now, I teach film and video production classes, cinematography, audio, lighting, multi-camera production and the university had to shift and transition all of its courses online. Now, when you're teaching classes that are very hands-on and items and skills that students really need to have their hands on and have access to equipment, it's quite challenging to present those in an online format and just present the topics via Zoom. So I had to kind of shift gears in the way I was teaching my classes. And since our school was empty and everything was online, I had access to our large soundstage. So I shifted all of my classes, all the teaching of the skills that I covered in my classes into our large soundstage. And I set up multiple cameras, one so that I could shoot me when I was presenting another kind of a close up of the actual activity I was doing, another one in a kind of a medium, maybe a white shot. Oftentimes I had three or four cameras that I had set up and I would cut back and forth between them to really highlight the topic that I was covering. And to do that effectively so that the students would have as great of a learning experience as they can under the conditions that all the students basically worldwide were having to experience at that time as a result of COVID, I really had to shift my approach uh, to teaching. And it took a considerable amount of time. I would estimate it was probably three times as much time to teach and present every class as it had in the past, because I had to kind of restructure the curriculum. I would then actually do a walkthrough, kind of teach the class in advance so I know that I had all the material available, all the equipment, all the tools that I needed and how I could teach it effectively and smoothly without having to stop and cause lots of delays in the actual class 
period. And then I would actually teach it, and then I would have to kind of clean up everything and get set for my other class. So I was teaching three classes that in the spring and also in the summer. And so it was very, very time consuming. And I found myself just being completely overwhelmed in a sense from just a workload standpoint. And I decided to put the podcast on hold for a little bit. Well, also at that time, my family and I had been looking at different areas of the country, primarily up in the Northwest, and we're seriously considering relocating out of the Southern California area. And we saw this time period as a great opportunity to possibly pull the trigger on that. So we were taking trips up into the Northwest, and in the early summer of last year of 2020, we made kind of our final trip to to fine-tune our decision. We had been looking at different businesses to purchase, and we had traveled up to the Montana area, and we found a business that looked like it was going to be a good fit for us, and we decided now was the time to pull the trigger on that decision, and we were going to move our entire family up to Montana. So once again, that's another very time-consuming process that got kind of added on to what I was already doing at the university. So Middle of summer, we decided we're going to put our house up on the market, which entailed getting our house ready to go on the market and then putting the house on the market, selling it very quickly, as was most of the houses being sold at that time in Southern California, and then a cross-country move for our entire family. And we have a family of eight, although my oldest son stayed in the Southern California area. He had a full-time job and was getting ready to start at the university as a full-time student. So moving seven people from Southern California to Montana, still teaching, decided, you know what, I'm just going to hold off on any additional episodes of the classic sports car until things get a little bit more settled. Well, during that move was also the time when my website hosting company, um, the contract had to be renewed there. And I had it set up on automatic renewal, but one thing I had not notice was that the credit card I was using for that had expired. So when it came time to renew the web hosting, the credit card wasn't active and I missed the emails that they had sent out saying it's time to renew, we need an updated payment method. And as a result, the website got pulled down because I didn't pay the hosting charge. Well, when everything finally got settled and we moved our family up to Montana, a uh, big moving truck and then a separate trip with a moving van with me with all the extra stuff. And I stayed back in California to finish up teaching out the year as the family was finding a house and starting up the business in Montana. When things finally got settled, kind of at the beginning of this year, 2021, then I realized the website was gone. Well, when I reached out to the tech support service at my hosting company, they said, okay, yeah, we can, we can restore it since you have a backup. I had all the backup files and I gave them to them. And they said, well, we're missing one of the files, the file with actually all the media and all the content in it. And for the life of me, I could not find that file. And it really bugged me because I knew I'd set up the backup the proper way. And so all those files should have been there. But for some reason, we could not find them. So in a sense, I was faced with having to completely rebuild my website, re-upload all of the previous podcasts, although there had only been six at that point. And at that point, I was just kind of thinking, well, do I want to basically start from scratch, do this all over again? And I wasn't highly motivated to kind of redo all the work I'd been doing for a year or so to get this launched. 
so that kind of got pushed to the back burner a little bit more. And it was just a couple of months ago I decided to dig a little bit deeper into my backup files, and I was able to find that final file and re-upload that to the web hosting service which I had renewed, and I was able to restore my website, which then gave me the motivation and the incentive to then continue on with the podcast. So here we are in the summer, middle of summer, July of 2021, resuming with episode seven. So a little explanation about the break in the action. One nice thing of taking a year off, you get an opportunity to kind of look back on that last episode, because I began that last episode with some news items of things that might be happening in the future. If you remember that, I had indicated that news sources were stating that Lotus was planning on creating one more vehicle on their old chassis, their old setup, before they came out with a whole new lineup of vehicles. And some were even speculating that Lotus might even bring back the Esprit name for that car. Well, I've got some updated news on that. In addition, I'd also mentioned that MG might be coming out with a new Roadster-type sports car. Now, here we are one year later, we can look back and see, did either of those take place? And that's gonna be part of our news segment here. Let's start with Lotus. Lotus has announced a new sports car is coming in 2022, but it will not be called an Esprit, but it will be called an Amira. Now, here is some info that I've gathered together from a couple of news articles from topgear.com about this new Lotus. So topgear.com states, Lotus is building a brand new old-fashioned sports car and it will take the name Emira. Why old-fashioned? Because it won't be an electric sports car, nor will it be a hybrid sports car. It will be the last combustion engine sports car Lotus will ever build. The Elise, Exige, and Evora are all being axed, don't forget. So the other three vehicles that had been available from Lotus, the Elise, the Exige, and the Evora are no longer being produced. And Lotus, along with many other manufacturers, has indicated that moving forward, they will not make any more internal combustion engines and everything will be electric powered. Well, we'll see how that plays out in the future. That might be a good topic for a future podcast. Continuing on with Top Gear's reporting, it says starting at under 60,000 pounds, which is roughly 83,000 US dollars, it will be a rival to the Porsche 718 or in America to the lower rungs of Corvette because it's going on sale worldwide. That's a bold ambition. Amira deliveries won't start until next year, which is 2022, beginning as a V6. A four-cylinder option is a few months later again. The V6 is the supercharged Toyota-based 3.5-liter V6 from the Exige and the Evora. The four-cylinder will be a version of AMG's superheated 2-liter turbo. There will be a manual, auto, and DCT auto transmission, says Lotus, again declining to say about what engine pairs with what transmission. Well, you can bet neither engine will be offered with all three. And in the old car, the V6 had manual or auto, so we can safely assume the DCT is for the four-cylinder. Lotus says the outputs are 360 brake horsepower and 400 brake horsepower, and that the quickest acceleration will beat 4.5 seconds for 0 to 62 miles an hour with launch control. Now, 62 miles per hour is roughly 100 kilometers per hour. That's why you often see that term used, the 0 to 62, in British and European automotive uh, journalism. 
but Lotus tantalizes by not saying which output is which. They both seem like they may not be trying that hard, because both those engines go beyond 420 brake horsepower in cars we know, the V6 and the Evora, and the 4 in the Mercedes A45S. Lotus says the new Amura will sit on an entirely new flexible lightweight aluminum platform internally referenced as Elemental and feature a design inspired by its heavyweight sibling, the all-electric Avia hypercar. New boss Matt Windle wants the Amira to drastically increase production volume from 1,500 cars a year to 5,000 and beyond. Elemental is just one of four new platforms Lotus intends on building that'll spawn an entire new range of cars. The second is the Extreme platform, which later this year manifests as a 1,972 brake horsepower quad motor electric hypercar called the Avia. Yeah, the one Lotus claims will do zero to 186 in nine seconds. Finally, Top Gear says, it's the evolution base that'll spearhead a new range of lifestyle Lotus cars. These cars will catapult Lotus into a new era of higher retail volumes and significant revenues, apparently, which they read as crossovers. So some of our predictions from a year ago were correct. Lotus coming out with a new car. They're not calling it the Esprit, and it will not be based on the old platform. It'll be based on a brand new aluminum platform that they are gonna be using moving forward. So that's news on the Lotus front. Now let's jump over to MG news. So last year, we indicated that MG might be coming out with a new roadster called the Cyberster. Now here's an article from autocar.co.uk. It says, MG has announced plans to put its bold new Cyberster Roadster into production in a posting to Chinese social media site WeChat. The posting, made by MG parent company's SAIC's design division, confirms the company has received more than 5,000 registrations to its MG Cybercube crowdfunding platform, established to determine whether the Cyberster would be produced. Autocar understands MG will pursue right-hand drive production for certain markets, likely including the UK. At the opening of the 2021 Shanghai Motor Show on the 21st of April, MG said it would monitor interest in the new two-seater with a target of achieving 5,000 registrations by the 31st of July. Now, each of the MG Cybercube registrations received by MG is combined with roughly $153 quote-unquote share deposit. It allows crowdfunding participants to provide input into the development of the Cyberster, according to MG. The electric two-door roadster is intended to be a vision of the future, previewing technology and design cues used by upcoming MG models while making nods to some of the historically British brands' past models, including the venerable MGB launched in 1962. The production version will feature heavily toned-down design cues, but will remain true to the overall concept. MG has yet to release full technical details of the Cyberster, but says that it's based on a bespoke EV architecture, will offer a range of 497 miles and a 0 to 62 time of less than 3 seconds. It will also feature 5G connectivity. So MG has basically pre-sold deposits of the prototype via crowdfunding to determine if there was enough interest to go into production. By reaching their goal of selling 5,000 of these shares, which comes to roughly $770,000, the car now moves into the production phase. 
So it looks like there will be a new MG Roadster in the future. And I also wonder if this could be the future of new car kind of prototype development for small companies, doing a crowdfunding platform to see if there's enough interest and also to raise the money to then take what they've got as a prototype and transition it into actual production. I guess we will have to see what the future holds in this regard. The last podcast episode also included part one of my own personal car ownership story. And if you listen to that, remember we left off with me selling my Datsun 2000 Roadster and trying to decide if I was going to buy an RX-7 or an Alfa Romeo Spider. Of course, both of these decisions were going to be used cars. I had roughly $7,000 saved up, but didn't want to spend more than 6,000, maybe 6,500 to buy a new vehicle because I knew there was probably gonna be additional expenses and I wasn't gonna be working nearly as much once I went to the university full time. So I was going back and forth, back and forth between those two vehicles. And I also mentioned my dad was not a big fan of both of the things I was looking to purchase. One being a used car, he always said, if you buy a used car, you're just buying someone else's old problems. And he was not a big fan of foreign cars either. He had always bought General Motors vehicles and he was the pinnacle poster child of the GM buyer. And if you're familiar with GM back in its heyday, it was structured in a manner that it would try to bring the customer along the different ranges of GM vehicles over the life of their car ownership. So you would start with a Chevrolet, which were in a sense kind of the bottom ones, basic transportation, not the most expensive. Now, of course, there's going to be exceptions to all of this because you do have the Camaro and you've got the Corvette on the Chevrolet line. But you would try to get somebody into a Chevrolet when they were younger, kind of their first car. And then as they got a little bit older, started making more money and more successful, transition them into the Oldsmobile and from there into a Buick. And then from there, if they really made it big, into Cadillac. Of course, there was Pontiac over on the side, which was more or less the performance side of General Motors. So my dad followed that line quite quite linearly. Remember the very first car that I can remember was an old Pontiac station wagon that we had for a couple of years. And then that got traded in for a brand new Chevy station wagon. We drove, had that for many years. And then my dad went to an Oldsmobile. He had an Oldsmobile for a couple of models and then eventually got to Buick, which is where he really wanted to get. His older brother was a president of a bank in Wisconsin, and I always remember him saying that Uncle Paul drives a Buick, and one of these days I'm going to be able to drive a Buick like Uncle Paul does. So we kind of looked to Buick as where he really wanted to go. And he did have a Buick. I think he had two of them. He didn't have real big aspirations for Cadillac. He was just not a Cadillac kind of guy. But that was my dad, and he looked at what I was doing. In his mind, it wasn't that practical. And he came to me in the summer, July of that year, when I had sold my Datsun and was still looking for new cars. And he said, hey, if I lend you a couple thousand dollars more, because I know what your budget is and I know what you're trying to stay within, 
would you go and buy a new car and just give me peace of mind that you're going to be traveling off to school and traveling up to Los Angeles a lot, doing work after you leave school, that you've got something that you can just hop in and drive, not repair every evening, every weekend, and all you have to do is change oil and add gas. And that really kind of caught me off guard because I was not expecting that. And who's not going to want to jump at an opportunity to buy a brand new car when you are, what, a 21-year-old or 20-year-old kid? One thing that was a challenge was my dad was going to go on vacation in a couple of weeks. Now, he had been retired at that point, and him and my mom would go on a five, six-week vacation at the end of August and um, usually beginning in September because they'd like to go starting early fall when everyone else had kind of gone back to work, gone back to school, and the crowds were less. So he was leaving in a couple of weeks, and my school is going to be starting in a couple of weeks. So I only had a few weeks to figure out now what I was going to buy. I had no concept of a brand new vehicle. I had a hard enough time determining whether I was going to get an RX-7 or an Alfa Romeo. Now, I also had thought that, well, since it's my dad's money and he's such an American car guy, that he was only going to lend me that money if I bought an American car. So I started looking around, and really the only thing out there in my price range that I was somewhat interested in were two vehicles. One was a Pontiac Fiero, and the other was a Ford Escort GT. Let's start with the Fiero here for a second. The Fiero was a two-seater, mid-engine, had the the in a sense the appearance of a sports car which I'd come out of. And I took a look at a couple of Fieros at a couple of car dealerships. I never actually drove one though, because each time I went and looked at one of the Fieros, I kind of liked them less and less. Realized it had even less room than my Datsun and my Triumph had, and it just felt kind of cheesy with a lot of plastic parts in it. And the Fiero that I really wanted was the V6. Now, if I could afford that one, I would have probably purchased that one right off the bat. But the V6 was close to $12,000. So with the money my dad was going to lend me, I was kind of looking at nothing over about $9,000. Now, remember, this is back in the kind of the, the late 1980s. Now, the other car I was considering was the Ford Escort GT. Now, this might seem like an odd choice for someone coming out of sports cars and still wanting to stay in the sports car world to kind of go to more of a commuter car. But I'd taken a trip to Europe a couple of years earlier, and one car when I was over there in Europe that really caught my eye was the Ford Escort RS. And it seemed to be pretty popular among young college kids, and it was kind of the hot hatch of that era. And this was kind of the very beginning of that hot hatch era. And they didn't sell that car here in the U.S., but they, Ford did come out with the Escort GT, which, if you looked at it in just the right way, kind of reminded you of that Escort RS from Europe. The Escort GT kind of had the flared wheel wells and looked a little bit more aggressive. So I went and test drove a Ford Escort GT and was very unimpressed. Now, here I was running out of time, didn't like the Fiero, didn't like the Escort GT. And I just decided, you know what, I'm not going to get one of these. And I remember asking my dad if I really had to get an American car. And he kind of chuckled and said, no, why, why would you think that? I want you to get what you want. So that was great news to hear from my dad. But it now put me into a different situation because I'd done a lot of work trying to research American cars. And I had no idea what was in my range outside of the American vehicles. One night I was driving past a Honda dealership. 
and it, it was closed. And in the showroom, enclosed showroom, was their brand new CRX, which they had just come out with a couple years earlier. Now, I knew a little bit about the CRXs from reading in Road and Track and some of the other auto, ma auto magazines and how much everyone loved the Honda CRX, but I had always assumed that that car was way out of my price range, that it was much too expensive. But since the dealership was closed, I said, you know what, I can spin around and take a look. I don't have to worry about a salesman coming out and trying to sell me something. I can at least take a look and see how much they're going for. And I was absolutely floored when I looked at the price and saw that it was right smack in the middle of what my budget was. And this became a great revelation to me that I could actually afford a Honda CRX. Now, Honda's CRX come out, as I mentioned, just a couple years prior to that, and they were an extremely popular vehicle. Now, Honda made three versions of the CRX. They made the CRX HF, which stood for high fuel, or high fuel consumption, high fuel economy. And that was the car that got 50 plus miles per gallon, but it, I think it only had 50 horsepower also. And from what I read, you really had to have those carburetors that it had on it tuned just perfectly to get that 50 miles per gallon. And then they had the Honda CRX, which was just without any letters on it, which was kind of the middle grade one. And then they had the CRX SI, which was the fuel injected one. And that one was the one that everybody wanted. But of course, that was a couple thousand dollars more. So I decided, okay, I want the standard CRX and I want it in blue. And I called around a number of Honda dealerships before I finally found one that had one in stock. And there was only, I think, two in all of Orange County where I was living that had them in stock. So my dad and I went there and he was kind of upset because the dealer was only willing to take $100 off the MSRP for it. So once again, this was a very in-demand vehicle at the time. So with my dad's assistance, I purchased a brand new 1986 Honda CRX, and that car was incredible. It was two-seater. It got, when I was conservative, it got in the low 40 miles per gallon. It was small, lightweight. I think it had 86 horsepower in that one, but because it was so small and so light, it was very peppy. It had a very free-flowing engine, and it handled incredibly. And I had that car for about 11 years, put about 180,000 miles on it, took it across country and back once when I moved to Georgia to work at a TV station. So I had that for a number of years and I absolutely loved that car. So now we're gonna jump forward 11 years in my life and I've graduated college and I've been working in the television and video production world for a number of years. And I had traveled to Georgia and back, and I was starting to do a lot more freelance work. And as a camera operator, if you're a freelance cameraman, you got to carry a camera and a tripod and oftentimes light kits and light stands and sandbags and other things. And as great as that CRX is, it really doesn't fit any of those items. So I ended up selling the Honda and bought a Ford F-150 to be my work slash commuter slash everyday driving vehicle. And just as a side note, that was back in 1997, and to this day, I still have a Ford F-150. So those 20-plus years have gone by, and I have had, I'm on my fourth F-150 now. They've been a truck, a vehicle that has served me well in that regard. Jumping ahead a few more years now, got married, started a family. Wife took the truck once the kids started coming, and I got a small commuter car. It was a Mazda Protégé, drove that for a few years, and... 
sold that and then drove a Honda Accord for a couple of years also. At this point, I'm married, have a house, have two kids on the way to what will be eventually six kids, and kind of got this feeling, this thought that the desire for a small sports car is kind of gone. That was in my past. I've put that aside. I've got to do the practical thing now. I've got the truck for work and for hauling family members and other items, going to the big box store to get stuff for your house. And I was all set and had put that desire, that phase of my life behind me. Until one day, my wife comes back from going to a garage sale that was down the street from us. And she's got this big, thick red book that she picked up at the garage sale. And she said, oh, I found this book at the garage sale. I was looking through it and the neighbor said, oh, you're interested in that? And, he, and my wife said, well, I'd like to get it from my husband because he used to really be into these kind of old cars. He said, oh, you can just have it. So she brings this big red book back into the house and hands it to me. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks for thinking of me. And I'm thinking, okay, well, yeah, I kind of used to be into those kind of things, but I've kind of outgrown those. That was a phase in my past. Well, then I started looking through this, started thumbing through it, and there they were, the Triumphs, the Alfa Romeos, the MGs, the Austin Healys, the Jaguars, and the Lotuses, some small ember that had still been burning deep within me, caught fire. And all of a sudden, that spark ignited into a flame. And I realized, oh my goodness, I have missed these cars so much. And I want another one. We were at a time in our life where we had moved out of our home that we had bought when we got married and had made a decent amount of profit because we had bought it at the low end of the market and we sold it right before the market crashed. And we were actually renting a house down in the San Diego area as I was beginning to work at the university that I would work at for 15 years. And so I had the money, although I didn't really have room in the garage. So I decided, you know what? I'm finally at a point in my life where maybe I can get an extra car. And so I started looking for TR4s and TR6s and Alfa Romeo Spiders. And briefly at Austin Healy's when I realized, well, these are going to be way too much money. And I got into a very, very serious bid on a TR6 on eBay. And I just got outbid on that. But that would have been a wonderful car because it was, in at least from the pictures, in really good shape. And I kept looking and I kept looking. And one day in local Craigslist ad, I saw somebody trying to sell a TR6 that had been completely parted out. And looked at it and said, oh man, that's a lot of work. That's gonna be a big challenge. But I kept going back to that ad. A week later it was still there. I think another week later it was still there. And the desire to get my tools out to fix something, to restore something, to put something back together, which I had mentioned in the previous episode, walking past my neighbor's house and the two older boys that were brothers that had always been working on Triumphs was really an inspiration. Um, kind of made that connection. And I decided to reach out and talk to this guy who was selling this, this Triumph that was in pieces. Turns out he had bought this TR6 from one of his employees who had bought the car and was getting ready to restore it and completely stripped it. I mean, he took everything out of it, took the engine out, took the seats out. So it was the bare frame and everything else 
was off to the side. You wouldn't call it a basket case, but it was a trailer case because all the parts were in a small enclosed trailer in the parking lot of this guy's shop. Well, the guy that was, had stripped it kind of fell on hard times, so his boss kind of felt sorry for him and bought it off of him. And it sat in his shop because he had a towing, towing company. So it, sh- it sat in his shop for about a year, and he realized, you know what? I'm not into these kind of foreign cars. I'm just going to get rid of it. So he had it for a very, very reasonable price. And just the concept of the image of, oh, I could just take all these pieces and put them back together. In a few months, I'll have uh, my own TR6 that I kind of built up from the ground. So I ended up buying that TR6 and brought it home. And of course, any type of a project car like that, your hopeful aspirations, your hopeful outcomes are always diminished once you really start the work on it, or in most cases, in the stories that I've heard. And it turned out to be need a lot more work than I thought it was going to. I found a guy that was probably about an hour away that had his own shop and really specialized in British cars and took it out to him and really got to, to know him and talk to him. And he looked through everything and said, yeah, it's a, it's the, the chassis is in good shape. The body's in good shape. You got a lot of new parts that the guy had bought. Let's, let me look through it. And I told him about my history. And so we developed a pretty good understanding of things that I could do, things that I should send to him. And he looked over things and says, ah, oh, this engine looks like it had been rebuilt, but it looks like they didn't do this, didn't do this. So I had him rebuild the engine. He rebuilt the transmission. He rebuilt the differential. I then started with doing the suspension, doing the, I uh, put a uh, new body mount kit in, completely rebuilt the suspension, put urethane bushings. Uh, but this stretched out over about 10 years. At the time, we, as I mentioned, we were renting a house and we rented one house, left that and got into another one. And then we decided to buy a house. And so while I was renting houses, I had time and money to, to spend on the car. But as soon as we bought a house, all my spare time and money went to the house. And we had a house for a couple of years and then it looked like my work was going to be moving. And so we put the house on the market and sold that. But then it turns out the job wasn't moving. So then we jumped into another rental. So I had some time and money to put back into the car. But after about 10 years, I realized there was still a lot of work that needed to be done. Um, I had kind of gotten the car, the TR6, to a point where everything was completed, but it now had to be all assembled. And the gentleman that I was referring to that had done the engine rebuild and the transmission rebuild, I was going to rely on him to put the engine back in and kind of do the hard connecting stuff. But he was semi-retired and worked by himself. And he kept telling me, oh, I'm a year out before I can get to it. I'm a year out before I can get to it. I'm a year out before I can get to it. And that went on for about a year and a half. And I realized that as my kids were getting older, I was spending more time with them, that I think it was time to let the TR6 in the state that it was go. And I think the, the, the final straws, I had initially put it up for sale just to see if there was any interest. And a guy came out. And once he saw the condition, he realized that it's a little too much more work than I want to tackle right now. But we just started talking about stuff. And he said, you got to be careful with those urethane bushings that you put in there if it just sits for an extended amount of time, because those urethane bushings are designed to be self-lubricating by being used. And if it sits, they're going to kind of dry out. And that was kind of the final straw for me, because then I started looking really closely at them. And I could see, wow, they do look like they're drying out. The last thing 
I wanted to see is little cracks appear in the bushings or in the, in the new boots that I put on there three, four, or five years ago and only have to completely redo what I had spent all that time and money on. So at that point, I realized, okay, I'm not going to really get to this for a few more years. It's at the point where if it's not put together and used, all the things that I, or not all, but some of the things that I had already worked on is going to have to be replaced. So like I said, that was kind of the final straw. So I put the car up for sale a second time after hesitating that first round. And that's where I ran into Serge, met Serge, who I interviewed in a previous podcast and sold it to him. He took that car and worked on it for a couple more years, putting it all back together and got it back onto the road, which I was so happy to see the, the video. When Serge finally got it on the road, he sent it to me. And just to see him complete that and to get that TR6 back onto the road. After I sold the TR6, I did buy a Ford Mustang convertible, had that for a couple of years because I wanted that convertible fix. It was a fairly new one, so it was a 2016 Mustang that I bought and had that for a couple of years. And then my truck was needing to be replaced and my oldest son was starting to drive, so I decided to sell the Mustang and I ended up buying two vehicles with the proceeds of the sale. So I got a new truck for me and I got a Honda Fit, which my oldest son drove for a while, and now my second oldest son is driving that. And I'm driving the F-150 around. So I'm kind of an in-between phase here. I constantly keeping my eye out for what's available. Not nearly as much up here in the Montana area, but I did run into a group of guys up here in the Billings, Montana area that have a foreign car club. And I ran into him because the guy that runs it has a TR4 that he parks out in his uh, driveway out in the street, and he uses it practically as a daily driver. So one day, just driving by his house, I pulled over and stopped and started talking to him, and he told me about his club. So I've met a few individuals out here. One guy's got an Alfa Romeo Spider that he's trying to sell me, so uh, I don't think he knows my soft spot for those yet, and I'm being being cautious and trying to resist the temptation to finally pull the trigger on getting an Alfa Romeo Spider, but I will be keeping an eye out for something to get me back into the driver's seat of a classic sports car sometime in the near future. So there you go, bringing you up to speed on my own personal car history, car ownership detail, and how it got started and how it works at this current day. So thanks for listening to this episode and keep an eye out for the next episode, which hopefully will be coming in a much shorter period of time than a year off. So hopefully we'll get these going out at about a weekly basis, rolling out into the future. Thanks for listening to the show. For additional features, please visit the website at classicsportscar.com. Please join us again for another episode. Until then, I hope to see you out on the road in your own classic sports car.